Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, what's going on? It's that most amazing of all American holidays. It's Super Bowl Sunday. It is. And the amount of cares that I have is approaching zero. (laughs) You and me both. We are the best Christians ever because instead of partaking in anything Super Bowl related, we've decided it sounds like we should talk about the atonement. Yes, the atonement. So it's Systematic Theology Night. And as we mentioned uh, on the last systematic episode, which was the person of Christ primarily, um, the the person and the work of Christ are usually treated together. And so the way that that plays out is you usually have uh, a discussion of the sort of metaphysics of the incarnation, which is what we did last time. And then you have a discussion of uh, Christ's work, particularly Christ's work on the cross. And then uh, you sort of touch on, you know, what Christ did for us by living a perfect life and how that all plays into it. So... Uh, so I think we'll just jump in. Yeah, check out those episodes because I think they're pretty fantastic. If I don't say so myself. Yeah, and we'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes. You'd think one of these times that we would like I don't know like prepare ahead of time and know which episodes those were. I have no idea. I just I guess not. <laughs> I just know they're good. So to prevent anybody from missing anything awesome, just start at episode one and just crush them all. Yeah, just go back and listen to the whole thing again. You won't be sorry. You you might be sorry, but probably not. That's probably, so, there's a non-zero chance that you will be sorry, but uh, I think that uh, maybe you'll be blessed. Who knows? It's true. So there are, uh, there are broadly speaking, there are two major categories uh, when you're talking about atonement theories. There's what's called subjective atonement theories, and there's what's called objective atonement theories. And the, the main difference is that in subjective atonement theories, um, you are atoning by basically um, there's an influence on the subject as in I am the subject and the atonement somehow influences or affects me um, but it doesn't accomplish anything in and of itself and I think that'll make more sense when we talk about a couple of those theories in objective atonement theories um, the atonement itself does something it accomplishes something it's not just showing me something or revealing something or um, giving me a pattern to follow. It's actually accomplishing something. So um, we're going to, I'm going to blast through them because I don't want to spend a lot of time. We want to focus on practical things and we don't want to spend a lot of time giving you a whole rundown of all the different theories and just kind of making a muddy mess of it. So um, when we're talking about subjective theories of the atonement, there's two main ones we're talking about and they, they share a lot of similarities. The first one is called moral influence. And I'm just going to read the description out of um, Pilgrim Theology by Mike Horton. It says, this view interprets the atonement as a demonstration of God's love rather than as a satisfaction either of God's dignity or of his justice. The effect of the atonement is to provide a moving example of God's love 
that will induce sinners to rep, uh, to repent. So the idea behind this uh, theory is that Christ goes to the cross and he does something so self-sacrificial and so beautiful that uh, sinners can look to it, they can repent, and then they can live a godly life. So it, it doesn't um, atone for sin. It doesn't pay a penalty. It doesn't satisfy justice. It doesn't do any of those things. The other um, subjective view is called moral government theory. And let me read from Horton again. It says, according to this view, Christ's atonement exhibits God's just government of the world and thereby establishes repentance as the basis on which human beings approach God. So um, this tends to be more prominent in certain strains of Arminian theology. And um, essentially what it does is it reveals kind of God's economy to humanity. And through that, um, it enables humans to come to God. Now, some some aspects of moral governance theory will actually say that Jesus's death on the cross kind of instituted a new government or a new law. And so then um, sinners come to God on the basis of that. Um, another kind of formulation might be that God actually is able to relax his justice based on um, what Christ did on the cross and thereby allow sinners who normally wouldn't be able to come to God, who wouldn't be able to merit salvation, to actually come and merit salvation. So those those two uh, theories are ones that we would say are, are not going to fly, at least not on their own. Um, there's major right problems with both of them. We don't want to spend a lot of time on them. Um, when we get, I think when we get to the end, we'll talk about how um, all of all of the different atonement theories kind of integrate and all of them point at a really important reality in the atonement um, and only only penal substitution, which we'll get to really is the um, the standalone that can serve as its own thing that doesn't have other, you know, other connections to, to other atonement theories. So there's not any one atonement theory that's completely wrong. Um, so, you know, it's true that Christ's death on the cross gives us a, a beautiful example and should induce us to repent. Um, it's true that God sets up this um, sort of this new economy um, whereby we come, you know, we'll, we haven't talked about covenant theology, but he sets up this new economy where we can actually obtain merit through what Christ did on the cross. Um, but it's not a strict merit. It's not a one-to-one. -one it's a, it's a, he's accepting uh, us on the basis of Christ's work instead of on uh, the basis of kind of the the natural law or the covenant of works. So both of those have kernels of truth, but by themselves, they just don't fly. Right on. So when we get into the objective ones, um, we're going to I'm going to kind of start with what I think are the sort of the least um, the least viable and move towards, I think, more viable ones. So the the first and probably one of the earliest um, atonement theories is called recapitulation. And you'll see a lot of similarities to what, what gets taught in um, penal substitution and in satisfaction theories. Um, but uh, here it says, uh, associated especially with Irenaeus and Eastern theology, this view underscores Christ's life as well as death as undoing humanity's collective transgression, replacing Adam's headship over the human race with his own. So you see there's a lot of similarities to what we would call federal theology or federal uh, headship theology. Um, and, and basically, if you want to boil this down, this is kind of like what Christ does on the cross is he pushes the reset button and he, he lives the life that he's supposed to live that, that Adam was supposed to live. And instead of any sort of like exchange that happens um, where there's a substitution on the cross, the cross allows him to push the reset button and instead take everybody out of Adam's category and put them into his category. So he re reheads um, all of humanity and brings humanity forward into salvation. Um, 
it, it doesn't quite go far enough is where we're going to say the problem is, right? There's no real substitution. There's no real covering for sin. It's just, uh, it's just a start over um, and there's no exchange of merit. There's no exchange of penalty or anything, which is where the problem comes in. Have you studied recapitulation theory at all, Jesse? I mean, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with it. More, I would say, familiar with it by what it lacks rather than what it puts forward. But like you said, I, I like where, how you've been defining things so far. And I like that you've been affirming that there are these little nuggets, if you will, of truth in each of them, because this is a complicated matter. So they're all kind of trying to take this jewel of atonement and turn it over in their hands and look at it from different angles. And the matter is we're trying to get to systematically, that is trying to systematize our approach by looking at the full counsel of God, which one of these best describes, best comports with all of scripture. Right. Um, And before I forget, uh, this is, I'm reading from a chart on page 208 of Pilgrim Theology where it lays them all nicely. Um, So if you want to take a look, that's the way. Um, So then uh, after recapitulation um, would would be, I would think um, kind of the the next more likely would be Christus Victor. Uh, And it says here, a key aspect of atonement theology, especially in the East, as well as in Lutheran and Reformed teaching. This theory emphasizes Christ's victory over the powers of death and hell at the cross. Um, And then Horton here adds, yet this can only be true because his death cancels the law's death sentence for us. So the idea here is that um, humans are kind of casualties in this cosmic war between uh, the powers of darkness and God's powers. And, um, what Christ does is he deals the decisive blow to the powers of darkness. And what's really common is, um, and this is, I think, is a, a good element of it, is there's um, people who are part of kind of the kingdom of darkness and there's people who have become part of Christ's uh, kingdom. And so the victory is Christ and all of his people over and against the powers of darkness and those who are hell. Um, again, it doesn't quite go far enough because even though it's true um, that Christ does overcome the powers of death and darkness, this still doesn't really take care of, of sin. And what it misses is that um, the sentence of spiritual eternal death that lays upon us is, um, yes, it's kind of executed often by the powers of darkness, but ultimately it's God's sentence upon us. So even if those powers are defeated, we still need to be atoned for because really God is our problem when we're sinners. It's not the devil is a problem, but ultimately God is the one we have to deal with. So Christus Victor theory doesn't really. Absolutely. Um, and then moving up kind of one more step is ransom theory. Um, it says also known as the classic theory, because of its association with Origen and other Alexandrian theologians, this view held that Christ's death was a ransom paid to Satan for the ownership of humanity. Um, so again, where this where this one sort of falls apart is that the payment is paid to Satan. Now it's not it's not the case that Satan is some sort of like alternate power that is is competing with God in this case. So it is it does sort of gel with the Christus Victor model. But the, the idea here is that God sets up a system and that system includes Satan as kind of his jail keeps executioner. And so Satan is operating um, within the confines of what God has ordained and the system he set up. But that doesn't mean that the, the jail keeper, as it were, still doesn't need a fine to be paid to release the captives. So what happens is Jesus comes and um, he pays that fine. But instead of 
um, this being sort of like a payment to justice or justice being served, this is a penalty that's being paid to Satan. Now, where this gets a little bit tricky is that there tends to be sort of a deceptive element that's added to this. Um, a lot of these early Alexandrian writers um, and some of the Cappadocian fathers, they talk almost as though um, there's like a fish hook. So Jesus comes and he takes on a human nature and um, Satan just can't resist going after him. And so Satan takes the bait and then all of a sudden the trap is sprung. So I would almost want to separate those into sort of two different atonement theories, but I've never actually seen that done um, because the ransom theory seems like um, it's very straightforward. There's a debt that needs to be paid and that debt is owed to the jailkeeper. And so Christ accumulates the funds necessary to pay the jailkeeper and to pay the fine in order to release the captives. Um, but there is this this fishhook deceptive element where not only is the fine paid, but then the jailkeeper is almost like trapped into unraveling the whole system. So once Satan takes the bait, he attacks the innocent man um, and claims that innocent man, then the whole system falls apart and all of a sudden the captives can be freed. Um, so I, I'm not sure exactly why those two always come together. Um, I think it's because the writers that are forwarding them, they utilize both and they, they integrate them in interesting ways. But I would really like to see those those two taken. Have you run into that at all or have you you thought that before? Yeah, I've, I'm with totally with you on that. I thought the same thing, that there could be a benefit by separating out the nuances of those two. All of this is nuanced, but there's a lot of it that I think could benefit from a little bit more clarity. There's some of them are weirder to me than others. Yeah. And that one is a little bit weird. Like you said, there's elements of it that ring true. And certainly all of these will pull out or proof text certain portions of scripture to support that view. So it's not as if they're just really trying to bring this, these ideas out of thin air. But again, it's a question for me of which is like the most consistent through the whole scripture. Right. Yeah. And that one has the benefit of having like an explicit verse that says like the right. son of exactly. man came to ransom many. So there, there is a real element that Christ is coming to rescue those who are bound. The difference, I think, is that um, what we're bound to is not necessarily Satan. I mean, the scripture says that we're bound under Satan. He came to ransom us from death, the devil, you know, all of these things. But more, more so, we're bound to sin. And so Christ is not just rescuing us from this cosmic jailer that's been set up. Um, he's rescuing us from ourselves and from our own body. Right. I also like what you said before in that this view sometimes, I think, elevates Satan too high. And we've, we've already spoken about him on this podcast pretty extensively. And the problem that we have is that the just to whom the, sorry, the judge to whom we are responsible is God himself. So our problem isn't necessarily that we just need the key to get out. Right. It's that we have a just punishment that we deserve. And our problem really is with God and not, not specifically with Satan in like a, like a kind of an extreme sense. Right. Um, and then moving on, um, this one is probably um, as close to on the mark as you can get without actually being on the mark. And that is uh, satisfaction theory or vicarious satisfaction theory. Um, and this says here, associated especially with the 11th century theologian Anselm, this view understands Christ's atonement primarily as an appeasement of God's offended dignity rather than divine justice. So um, there's a really interesting book that was written by a professor of mine um, at Gordon-Conwell, and I'll, I'll link to the book as well as to the review that I wrote. And the, the interesting book, it's called um, Atonement. Uh, Law and Justice, I think, is the subtitle, and it's written by Adonis Vidu. And what uh, what Doctor Vidu does is he traces 
um, atonement theories throughout the history of the church, as well as legal theories. He kind of has them on parallel trajectories. And he shows how the, the law systems in place during different eras affect the different kinds of atonement theories. And so um, what's really interesting with satisfaction theory is it's very rooted in kind of the feudal system of Middle Ages. So if you imagine, um, you know, kind of your classic um, unfair king, uh, you know, can't really handle justice thing is the poor uh, hunter wanders onto the king's land and um, accidentally shoots one of the king's deer. Um, it's not enough just for that hunter to then go and replace the deer for with another deer. The king's, it's not just that the property has been damaged or the law has been violated, but the king's honor has been. And so oftentimes what you see in these stories is that the king exacts some sort of vengeance against the hunter in order to not only punish the hunter, but to restore his dignity. And so the higher the dignity of the king, the graver the the retaliation must be to pay for that to you know to restore that on um and so when we're talking about anselm where he goes with this is he says well the the offense against god can be kind of minuscule in the grand scheme of things it it could be a minor infraction but since god's dignity is infinite then the violation of his honor is also infinite. So the retribution against his honor needs to be infinite as well. So what Christ does, and he writes this beautiful little book called Why the God-Man, Cur Homo Deus, and he reasons mostly from logic, but he does utilize scripture a little bit too. He he reasons out that um, in order to, to bear a punishment that is commensurate to restore the honor of the king who's been offended by humanity, that king being the father, the son has the the person bearing that punishment has to be infinite because a finite creature could never bear the infinite punishment and the infinite um, retribution of that king that was merited to to restore that on. But he also has to be an adequate substitute. So so the the God man has to be both God and man in order to accomplish both those things. This is I think is as close to penal substitution as we get in sort of a raw form until we get to. Um, till we get to the Reformation. Now, there are there are kind of penal overtones and substitutionary overtones that go all the way back to the very earliest part of the church, but we don't get a full-fledged penal substitution until we get to the Reformation. But Anselm's, Anselm's theories here is kind of where Calvin and Luther, where they jump off and they make the shift, and we'll talk about it in a second, they make the shift from talking about God's honor and sort of the retribution being because God is an offended, sort of an offend, personally offended deity, which has all sorts of questions questions about um, aseity and impassibility, those kinds of things. But rather than being an offended deity who needs to sort of lash out to restore his honor, it's about law and justice. Now, Calvin and Luther were both uh, trained at various points in their life as lawyers. So I've always wondered, and, and you know, this is sort of a rabbit trail, but I've always wondered if the, the since the dominant way we understand and maybe part of the reason why the Reformation worked the way it did, you know, we talk about God's providence working, um, using different things, different historical circumstances. I've often wondered if the fact that Luther and Calvin were both trained as lawyers are part of the reason why they were able to understand and make that shift to penal substitution versus um, Anselm, who wasn't, you know, didn't have any sort of legal trading and was in a totally different context. Does that make sense? I think that's totally fair. I've often thought that myself is that this is just another way in which God uses the way in which he has created our our mind to have different turns for different proclivities, either in terms of like our actual vocation, which we've also talked about 
check out that podcast. Uh, but here, here's two men who have like a really strong understanding of the legal nature of punishment. And I think they bring to bear like a totally different perspective that not only is just like a, a different way of approaching or a different paradigm with which to consider the atonement, but they see in the Old Testament a paradigm which really comports with this the legal structure of society. And so I think it's easy for them to make that link and they do so on biblical ground. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, it, you know, sometimes I just sit back and marvel at the providential working um, of God's goodness throughout history to see. Yeah, for sure. To see, you know, we're coming up on the 500 year uh, anniversary of the Reformation and to see the way that Luther was prepared um, throughout his life to have the unique contribution that he had and the unique not just like the fact that he was trained as a lawyer before he he started studying theology or that he happened to have contacts that could hook him up with the printing press or any of that but even even things like his temperament he was a very introspective thoughtful person who had a tendency to look inside of himself rather than outside of himself and that was part of his struggle is he couldn't he looked inside of himself and couldn't find anything that would bring him to peace with god and so it wasn't until he realized there was nothing inside of him left to give that could possibly appease god that he realized that that righteousness had to come from outside of and change him from the outside in rather than transforming the inside out. Amen. So at, and for go ahead. For that matter, you know, God continues to use his children, his church, his people to do that exact thing in their own day through their own means, through their own circumstances, through their own training, like we've talked about whether that be whatever your profession you're in or in terms of like the different hobbies that you have, God is using that now. And in fact, probably using people who are either hearing this or studied or thought about the atonement to articulate that in a way that is helpful to people so that they may also bring it into practical application in their own lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you would agree with me, but that's really my prayer for this podcast and for, you know, for like the things that I write on my blog or the way that I interact online with other people is my prayer is that God would utilize the talents he's given me and the talents he's given you to bring about, Amen. you know, reformation, not just in our lives, but in the lives of people around us as his spirit transforms us and binds us together with other Christians, that there would be transformation as communities as a whole as well. Amen. Yeah. Cause it's easy for us to forget or to think rather that God was on the move in a different era or he was on the move in a greater magnitude in a different era. Right. And I don't believe that's the way that he's operating. So he is using all people, all of, again, his children, all of those whom he's elected, he's given salvation to, to continue to influence those within their, their sphere, those with whom they interact. So if we kind of marginalize or broker that responsibility to somebody else and say, well, I'm not John Piper or I'm not Mark Jones. I just brought up Mark Jones because I'd like to bring him up yes. on as many podcasts as I possibly can until he comes on our podcast. Um, so like, I'm not these guys. I'm not like some exceptional Christian. I don't really know all the terms that you've just discussed. I'm not familiar with them. And therefore I'm going to relegate myself to some kind of like subgenre of Christian approach. And that's like just a horrible disservice that even the casual conversation, even the small talk can be at the water cooler or in the cafeteria can be such a mission of mercy and an act of love that I really find it unfortunate when we just set that by the wayside and say, it's not for me. Yeah, absolutely. You never know. You never know what God is going to do through your everyday faithful obedience. 
Absolutely. You know? And this is one of those subjects where it is so, there's so much reward. There's so much benefit from sinking in like a little bit deeper and trying to understand, even if it's like you said, kind of picking up uh, some material and trying to look through these different theories, try to understand what are the little nuances of them in so much as it will so much benefit your faith and your witness. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we talk about systematics and we talk about how systematics is like a spider web, how there's there's strands and, and connections that happen between doctrines that we might not think are related to each other that really make a huge difference. And we'll, we'll get to that as we go through the rest of this atonement. So why don't we, why don't we talk a little bit about penal substitution? So why don't you give yes, us the good one? Why don't you give yeah, the good one. Why don't you give us kind of a rough shot <laughs> definition of penal substitution atonement? So like you said with Calvin and Luther, because they were, they had a turn of mind that was certainly for the legal environment. They understood atonement to be something very precise and very narrow. And that was like really in short that Christ came, that his work on the cross was to save sinners and to be literally a substitution for those who deserve punishment. So there's a lot more that could be said about that. And I'll I'll kind of let you kind of elaborate on that. But the bottom line is that they wanted to make a very specific and strong stand on what the atonement accomplished. Um, And and before like you give like a more nuanced definition, here's the reason why I think that this is important, which is why we, we wanted to dedicate like a whole conversation to this. And that is, we spoke about before how perhaps the most important question you can you can answer is who is Jesus? And this question is just like that one, and that is what did Jesus accomplish at Calvary? What do you believe about the cross? Because the cross has some exclusivity about it. So if we're saying that the death of Christ is the only means to salvation and forgiveness and redemption, then we're also saying that without the cross, Christianity ceases to exist and the power of Christ is lost. So this is really tremendously important. And I know that the average Christian would probably say, I don't understand or I'm not familiar with half of the things that you just said in terms of the language that you use or the terminology to label the particular systematic approach to, to atonement. But there is no doubt that when we answer that question, what did Christ accomplish either specifically or implicitly by our actions or how we talk to somebody about faith or what it means to belong to Jesus? or how we live, we are absolutely answering that question. So that's why it's definitely worth thinking through. I mean, is that fair? I think it's absolutely fair. And I think, um, you know, we, we talk about how we want systematic theology. We want theology in general to be practical, something that actually makes a difference in your life. And so we have the question is, you know, who, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And then, you know, we follow it up with the question is, what did Jesus do on the cross? And then the next question is, well, who did he do it for? Right. Right, Did he he do it for me? Did he do it for no one in particular? Did he do it for everyone? Um, Those are questions that, you know, we probably have some sort of like instinctive answer. But this is one of those areas that most Christians, if they just follow their instinctive answer, are going to get it wrong. Um, And absolutely. That's that's a shocking thing. When I first, you know, we'll go into it right here. But when I first understood the way that this argument goes after we start to get into penal substitution. I remember it real distinctly because I was in seminary and I was sitting at Panera reading and I was reading, um, I was reading a book called why I'm not an, um, it's part of a two, two volume companion set. There's why I'm not an Armenian and why I'm not a Calvinist. And I remember reading the argument and it was the first time I'd ever approached it. And I literally put the book down. I sat back in my chair and I took a big deep breath and it was like a total paradigm change for me. 
And the way that I've thought about salvation, the way that I've thought about evangelism, the way that I've thought about ministry, the way that I've thought about preaching, about what the gospel is, all of those things radically changed for me when I got my head around the reality of, of some of these logical conclusions that have to come about with a penal substitutionary atonement. Absolutely. And I think that most, so I'm going to go out on a limb. You tell me if I'm like totally off base here. I think that most Christians, if you sat them down, sort of had the conversation we're having about what does it mean that Christ died on the cross? What does that accomplish? That they would, they would kind of gravitate toward penal substitutionary atonement, even if they don't know that exact phraseology. Right. And the funny thing is they may have outworkings in other parts of their faith that actually stand in contradistinction to that. Right that gravitation toward penal substitutionary atonement. So that's what's so strange about this. And, I, and I've seen that in lots of people. And in, in point of fact, like I was there myself, like you. So that's why I think this is just a wonderful, hopefully if nothing else, this particular podcast, this conversation is a foil for more conversation. Like go speak about this with your friends, talk to your pastor, talk to your elders, talk to your spouse, just take some time to like chill and have some really great conversation about this yeah. because I think it will result in blessing and clarification and help you work out what exactly it is you believe. If like you, so in my business, we're big on like the elevator pitch, you know, like, which is the, you get into an elevator with somebody whom you want to impress or try to get some business from. And you've got 30 seconds to explain who you are and what you do and why this is described to it. Yeah. So I would challenge everybody. What's your 30 second pitch for what Christ did on the cross? Can you even articulate it that well? It should be our challenge as Christians to be able to explain it practically and forthrightly and like at a level that makes sense to everybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, this will be the last thing I say and then we'll actually talk about what the, the doctrine is, is I think this is one of those things that when you, you first hear it, you go, well, yeah, of course. And then you start to yeah. you start to peel back the the depth of it and you peel back the layers and you're like, oh, 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 my, oh, my. <laughs> and, you know, incidentally, most most Calvinists, um, you know, total depravity, you know, fits in. It makes a lot of sense. You know, you kind of look at yourself. You're like, yeah, we're all pretty screwed up. None of us really see God. It, it seems to me to be the most transparently biblical out of all of the five points. You get to unconditional election and it's a little bit of a hard pill to swallow to think that God, you know, just kind of chooses people and he doesn't do it on any sort of observed basis in the person. Um, then you get to you get to limited atonement and you're like, wait a second, wait a second. Jesus didn't die for everybody. Yeah, right. Yeah, it just you, rocks you skip, your world. You skip over that one. You're like, OK, perseverance to the saints. Yeah, I get that. You know, God preserves those that he's called. You know, if he elected you unconditionally and there's nothing you could do to save yourself, then of course there's nothing you can do to reverse that process. Um, and I totally skipped irresistible grace. But the point is, is that those four points, um, they all fall into place pretty easily. And you, you see quickly how they all relate to each other. Limited atonement is the last one for almost everybody that falls into place. Um, funny story. I don't know if you've actually heard this. When I first met your sister, right in seminary, um, I said something about being a Calvinist. We were all sitting at lunch. I said something about being a Calvinist and your sister looked at me and got really excited and said, I'm a Calvinist too. And I remember in my head, I did this little happy dance. Cause it's like, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and I said, I said all five points and she goes, well, no, I'm a four pointer. I said, limited atonement. And she goes, yeah, I can't quite get there. And I oh. actually wrote on her Facebook wall that evening, I wrote, when are we going to get together and talk about limited atonement? So that was actually the, the nice. pickup line that I use nice. on your sister 
that started every. Well, I shouldn't say started everything, but that really kind of kicked things into gear. I think we went on our first date like two or three nights later. So fun story. Man. That's a glimpse inside the brotherhood there. Yeah. So not only will limited atonement cause all kinds of drama in people's lives, it may also get you a spouse. So remember that. Yes. So I think we've probably done enough build up. So your your yeah. definition of penal <laughs> substitution is great. The core the core words right penal penalty substitution substitution and the idea is that there is an actual concrete penalty that all humans um, first of all all humans bear because we are descended from Adam. Right. So that's a there's a covenantal federal headship aspect of that that we haven't talked about. But Adam sinned somehow. We don't know. We don't exactly understand how, but somehow um, that that sin is rightly and properly imputed and attributed to us. So it's not just that, like, well, we we get punished because Adam did something stupid, but we actually somehow are guilty of Adam's actual sin. I don't understand the mechanisms of all that. There's a whole bunch of different theories, and we'll probably we'll talk about that when we get to the the study on the fall and sin and stuff. So there's that, and there's an actual concrete penalty that needs to be um, suffered on, on that. There's a real punishment due to all humans because of that. But then on top of that, there's all of our personal sin. So um, even if I die, even if I somehow never committed any of my own sin, I would still deserve a punishment because I'm part of Adam's um, Adam's progeny. But we all also sin. So there's a concrete real punishment that I deserve, that you deserve, that everyone listening to this deserves. That real concrete actual punishment is then um, is what Jesus suffers and pays for on the cross. So it's not true to say that Christ suffers the exact same punishment that we would, but Christ suffers a punishment in our stead. So um, instead of us suffering and being punished for our sin, Christ is instead punished because he takes our sin. There's that double imputation, which we've talked about. Christ, Christ takes our filthy sin and we take his righteousness and holiness. And he gives that to us. There's that double imputation. Um, so that, I mean, that's penal substitution in a nutshell. And that's, that's something that most Christians, even like the language that Jesus died for me, right? That's such right. intuitive language and it's such, it's on the lips of every Christian and we just kind of instinctively get it. But when you stop, step back and think about what that actually means, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, this is a glorious truth. And it's one that not only is, you know, central, like we've already said, to the Christian faith, but this is one of the ones that has distinctives for like the stream of faith that you're in in terms of Christianity. So what we're saying and like unequivocally is that Christ's death saves sinners. Mm -hmm. It does not make salvation of sinners like a mere possibility. There's no theoretical atonement and it requires no additions, whether they be like meritorious, meritorious works of men or some kind of faith flowing from free will. Right. We're talking about the fact that Christ actually goes forward and is takes on punishment in our stead that we deserved and therefore we are saved without question. Right. And, and when I start to talk about this with like other people and they start to see like the outworkings of that, because that is really on many ways, like you said, like the first domino to fall and the wonderful consistency of like the reformed tradition is in fact that it is so logically precise. Right. So this in many ways is one of the first dominoes to fall. What I find is that the topic of the atonement is so fraught with like emotional pitfalls that we often tend to respond with emotion rather than biblically based thought or like some kind of other consideration. And I always try to emphasize, even in my own life, that sentimentality is not a replacement for doctrinal purity. 
And so there's, I mean, this is going to go but far beyond the scope of the podcast that we'll be able to cover tonight. But um, there is, in my opinion, no better summation of the work of Christ than penal substitutionary atonement. Right. And I think like it would be helpful. Let's talk about like specifically what is kind of like the reformed or Calvinist definition of atonement under that like penal substitutionary rubric. Sure. Like what, what does it mean? What are the implications? And you've kind of already touched on that a little bit, but I think that that's like the beauty of this doctrine, like why it is so freeing, why it is so loving. So, so hit, hit me with some of that. Yeah, so this is this is part of what is difficult about doing systematic theology. And we've talked about this before is that you have to make decisions about what you talk about first and what, you know, what comes in what. And th- there's actually a really interesting study that can be done about the the way that different theologies are organized. And I say that just to say that we have to talk about some parts of systematic theology that we haven't covered. And that's always going to be the case no matter where you start, no matter which direction you go. Right. So um, the the fundamental um, the fundamental reality of reformed thought on penal substitution is rooted in um, God's different covenants with humanity. So I'm most familiar with the Presbyterian models of covenant theology. There is a distinctly Baptist version of covenant theology um, that there are some nuances, but the broad contours are basically the same. Is that God God created Adam. So even before creation, the persons of the Trinity decided um, between themselves, among themselves, have whatever language we want to use to get at that. There was an agreement among the three persons of the Trinity that they that they would select a people for themselves and that they would they would have a people for themselves. So God created Adam and then he made a covenant with called the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. And this covenant was basically that. Adam, um, if Adam succeeded in his task, God gave him a task and he gave him a law. If he succeeded in his task and didn't violate God's law, he would be confirmed in the state that he was in permanently. So Adam was created. um, He was given immortality. He was righteous. He was in proper relationship with God. um, But it was it was a, a mutable situation. It could change. And we know it could change because it did change. But if he had succeeded in his task and obeyed God's law, then he would be confirmed in that state. For However, he didn't. So we get to Genesis 3.15 and God makes what's called the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is that God himself will fulfill the terms of the covenant. He will step forward and he will fulfill all of the terms that Adam was supposed to. And he will give us those blessings without anything in return. It's purely an act of of granting us blessing. So when we talk about penal substitutionary atonement, what we have to recognize is that that is an outflow of this covenant thought. It's not just that Christ substitutes as our penalty. He is our substitute in every imaginable way possible. He goes before the Father. He bears the Father's wrath. He prays for us, not just as in like intercedes for us, but he is actually the one praying and making our prayers effective. Um, So Christ is our substitute in more ways than just the the penalty of sin. But when we're talking about the atonement, we're specifically talking about that aspect of his. So that, that really is a unique, a unique aspect of penal substitution in the reform tradition that you don't see in um, Lutheran traditions that don't have the same kind of covenant structure or Arminian, um, situations, Arminian constructs that really inconsistently hold to penal substitution. You can't really be, um, you can't really be an Arminian and hold to penal substitution in most cases. Um, and we'll talk about why. And so does that kind of, kind of get at what you're going for? Yeah, that's exactly what I was, I was thinking about because 
again, you can't run from this doctrine. You are, by however you kind of metabolize it, you are internalizing something about it. And the most important question about atonement, I think, is whether Christ's intention was to make a full and complete atonement for every single individual, making salvation like theoretically possible, but not actual, or whether his intention was to make full atonement for all those who were given to him by the Father, which we generally refer to as the elect. You've got to fall in one of those two camps, and then that's going to help you kind of process where you go from there. And, And also, like, this is the crazy thing is, especially when we're speaking to unbelievers about Christianity, as you've already said, we use a lot of language about Christ dying for you. I mean, that's often the presentation that we give, that Christ died for you, uh, that Christ died for everybody. And yet we often don't think, what does that actually mean? Right. Yeah. Now, it, it there's an interesting book that I don't know if I would say all of our listeners should go out and read. Um, but there's a book by uh, a scholar named Oliver Crisp. He actually has two books, but he has a book called Deviant Calvinism. And the main thesis of his book is that the Reformed tradition is broader than kind of this small, granulated um, sort of Westminster Confession uh, Calvinism, or, um, John Piper Calvinism, this sort of uh, five-point tulip Calvinism. And on one level, he's right. So there's a whole host of quote unquote, reform views that don't quite fit the penal substitution mold. Um, there's something called Amaraldianism. Um, uh, it's hard to say. Um, well done. There's, uh, there's something called hypothetical uh, universalism. And both of those basically say that um, Christ's sacrifice or Christ's death was um, big enough to save everybody. So it's hypothetically universal. However, his intent was only to apply those benefits to the elect. Um, so you can think of it like this is that Christ, um, Christ's death earned enough merit to be able to pay for everything, to be able to pay for right. every person. But he didn't um, he didn't intend to apply that merit to anyone except the have faith. Now, if you listen, there was nothing about a penalty in that in that way of phrasing. Things, right. So if you're going to go that route, if you're going to talk about Christ's death, um, you know, it's really common for Calvinists to explain limited atonement and say that. Christ's death was uh, sufficient for all, efficient for the elect. Now, that's kind of a handy way to think about it, but that's not penal substitution, right? Right. Christ could have substituted for everybody. He could have. He didn't. So he only substituted for the elect. But that's not the same as saying Christ's death was sufficient for all because it's not sufficient for people he didn't substitute for. There's no sufficiency for people he didn't substitute for. He didn't substitute for, presumably, Adolf Hitler, right? We have every reason to believe that Adolf Hitler died in his sins and is suffering now in hell and will suffer eternally. And he he earned that just as much as I did, right? I'm no um, no less hellbound than uh, Adolf Hitler was, or I suppose isn't is, but whatever. Um, the difference is that Christ served that punishment that I earned. Christ's death was not sufficient. This is going to sound controversial, but it's really not. Christ's death was not sufficient for Adolf Hitler's sins because it was never intended, presumably, to right. do anything about Adolf Hitler's sins. Now, that's a tough pill to swallow because we think about we think about people we love that have died who are not who died. And we have no reason to think they were in Christ um, to think that Christ did not serve their punishment or did not die for them is just it's a way of thinking and talking that we're not used to. But when we start to really think about what it might mean to say Christ died for them, but then they still ended up in hell um, or we think they still ended up in hell. What we're doing then is we're saying, well, Christ really tried hard. 
He did everything he could to save them. And at the end of the day, they were just beyond his reach for whatever reason. Um, it could be that they, um, they, they really wanted, um, to be saved, but circumstances just weren't right. And Christ just couldn't, couldn't get it together to bring it about. Right. Right. Cause what we're really saying at that point is, is it at all possible that Christ could intercede for someone and yet fail in his work and right. that person be lost? That's really what we're saying. So when we pit those two against each other, that's when we start to have conflict, at least as we're trying to weigh out all those things. Right. And I, I totally agree with you that that is like really the problem with not being thoughtful, or I think one of the acts of maturity in faith is trying to understand this particular doctrine, right. because the, the way I understand atonement is through the lens of penal substitutionary atonement. And I believe that is the most biblical outworking or expression of this doctrine. And what we're saying is that, and so to your point, like I should say, I have often used like sufficient for all, but efficient for elect in like a pinch to describe right. in a sick manner what we're talking about. And I agree, it doesn't go far enough. Because what we're saying is that Christ's intention in his death was the perfect substitutionary atonement of all of his elect. So the scope of his work is in perfect harmony with his intention, which is the salvation of his elect people who are entrusted to him. So it makes no sense for Christ to offer atonement for those whom the Father did not entrust to him for salvation. So we're we're being really consistent. And again, I go back to this sense of like we're, we're reading the scriptures. Uh, the average Christian that, that loves the Lord Jesus Christ, that is trying to follow closely after him, that is enamored with who he is and what he's done in his person and respects his work, will gravitate toward this idea that Christ has been substituted for me. Like they'll look at Ephesians and say, this, this seems abundantly clear that Christ was given up for me, right. in my place, in my stead. And if you believe that, then I think you start to have to, you have to lean, you have to turn toward this road and understand that there are outworkings, no matter how hard they will be. Like I've been rereading, um, this just shows you how exciting my life is. I've been rereading um, all of the, like the full, like omnibus of work from Arthur Conan Doyle on Sherlock Holmes. And he has that famous saying about like, However, once all the facts have been displayed, right. however impossible, whatever remains, that must be the truth. And this is sometimes one of those things where it just seems to us that our autonomy, our desire to be able to choose to exhibit some sense of quote unquote free will, whatever that is, however we define it, is is so apparent that we just want to be able to say that God has made a way for all people. Right. And we bristle against anything that shows like that God may have complete sovereignty. Like we want to give God sovereignty over things like illness and our circumstances, which are relatively small things in comparison to our souls. And yet we don't want to move from the argument of the lesser to the greater in that way. Yeah. So it's a hard thing. It is. And so just to kind of um, to give some analogies that might help understand the different ways that people thought this. Um, And then I think we probably should move towards wrapping up because we could go on. We say this every time we could go on for like another hour, two hours. We could talk about this for the rest (laughs) of our lives. But um, the traditional evangelical way of thinking about the atonement is basically this, right? We are all prisoners in a jail cell. We all have our own jail cells. And what Christ does on the cross is he walks up and he unlocks the jail cell. And then we make a choice to get up and walk out of it. And so what he does is he unlocks all the jail cells. And those who are saved are the ones who have engaged their will to stand up and walk out of the jail cell. So the the, the more the less analogical way to say that is that Christ's atonement or Christ's death on the cross makes salvation possible for all insofar as those who choose to, according to their will. And, and even some Calvinists might talk this way and say that, well, those who choose to get up and walk out of the jail cell are those who God 
determined would or God, you know, um, regenerated and caused to. But ultimately, Christ's death didn't save those people. It just made them savable. The flip side, what we're talking about is um, we're all strapped into the electric chair and the the executioner is about to throw that switch. And at the last minute, Christ runs in and he pulls us out of the chair and he sits down and he takes the voltage. Right. I didn't I didn't do anything. Christ threw me out of that chair and died. He took my place. And, you know, we can we can talk about whether or not it's a just situation for for one person to serve another person's penalty. Um, You know, that's a whole different conversation that I don't I don't think is helpful for this context. But when we look at it that way, Christ's work is incredibly concrete. It's not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's actual. Christ actually saved me with what he did on the cross. It wasn't Amen. just making me savable. It wasn't trying to encourage me to to do the right thing and make the choice. You know, I have decided to follow, you know, none of that Billy Graham's <laughs> Billy Graham crusade oh, wow. stuff. Like I, I, let, I respect Billy Graham. He served a really important function in the church. But that sort of Charles Finney decision altar call theology did a lot of damage, too. And this this. Um, Making it possible atonement theory is a major outflow of that. That's part of why, especially for like our generation of Christians, that's part of why this is so hard for us to get our heads around is because we were raised in a context where, you know, all you got to do is come forward. All you got to do is pray this prayer. All you got to do is stand up and walk out of that jail cell. Well, no, that's not it. All you got to do is nothing. All you got to do is is be one of the people who's blessed enough for God to have chosen him. And just to, to, to wrap up this part of the discussion is, you know, we talk about how some of these things, these spider webs weave their way into other aspects of theology we might not expect. So penal substitution, not only does it have a lot to do about Christ and his perfection as mediator and things like that, but if you have a, if you have the son going to the cross and doing his very best to save everybody, to save the whole of humanity. But at the end of the day, he only saves those who the father elected. What you have is you have different contradictory desires in the game, right? The father does the father desires to save this number. And Christ Christ tried to save more than that. Is that do we think that's because the son somehow is more gracious and more loving than the father? Well, no, it's because right. our theology is broken. And that's that's one of the logical outflows of denying penal substitution is you have this contradiction between the father and the son. And then some people will actually take that even further and they'll talk about lordship theology where, well, you can be a carnal Christian and you don't have to be sanctified. Well, now you've got the Holy Spirit's getting in on that game where he's only actually sanctifying some, even though the son and the father want all of the elect to be sanctified. So we really it really is important Um you know, if you don't if you don't remember anything else that I'm saying tonight, it's really important to understand that theology as a whole is incredibly complicated, but it's important to get it right. Um, not just because um, we want to think and say true things about God. That obviously is the most important reason to get theology right. But in terms of practical outflow, the problem is that, you know, we all understand that there are some doctrines that are foundational base level doctrines that are um, more significant than others. The nature of who God is, the nature of Christ's work on the cross, the nature of what it means to be saved. Those are the bottom level of the pyramid. And, you know, things like, well, which eschatological view is right or what's the proper mode of baptism? Maybe that's another, you know, another layer up. It's still really important, but it's not, it's not as important as the other stuff. And then we get up to like, 
how many different orders of angels are. We get to the top. Well, it's it's true or false, and so it's important to try to be precise and accurate, but at the end of the day, it maybe doesn't really affect anything in the rest of your system. If you get the Trinity wrong, you're not a Christian. If you get the Trinity wrong in a certain way, you're not a Christian. And if you get the hypostatic union wrong um, in a certain way, you're not a Christian anymore. And penal substitution is one of those doctrines that if you get it wrong, it's going to give you wrong thoughts about the Trinity and about the hypostatic union to the point that you might be making an error that makes you not a Christian. Now, God has grace for that. And we trust his Holy Spirit to guide the elect, to guide those he's chosen into all truth, right? Jesus said that that's going to, but it's really important for us to sit down and be somber about our theology and recognize that, yes, this is difficult. Yes, it seems like it's way over my head, but to put in the time and work that it takes to really die. You, know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say about your wife or your husband, well, you know, I just want to love them or I just want to love her. I don't, I don't really want to study. You know, that stuff is dry. Doctrine divides. It, it doesn't really matter what her favorite food is or what color her eyes are, you know, where she went to school or what her parents' names are. Like those kinds of things don't matter. Well, if I get my wife's eye color wrong, if I try to compliment her and I tell her she's got the wrong eye color, that's not going to go over and it's going to cause major issues. Um, and our theology is similar as if we get things wrong in the wrong ways, in the wrong places, it's really going to mess up our relationship with um, And that's a somber thing. It is. I appreciate that. That's um, plus you just dropped like a giant A-bomb right there. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be one of those things that though our identity in Christ may be secure, our harmony with Christ is going to suffer. And I think, you know, like you said, to kind of draw this mostly to a close, what we're saying is the beautiful truth of atonement is that Christ is able to save, period. He has the ability to actually save human beings, deliver them from dominion and penalty of sin, and bring them into eternal glory. And that's not a potentiality, that's a reality. And that is a glorious truth to rest on. So I think no matter which of these you look at and you subscribe to, or which of these you find, again, the kind of these grains of truth in, we can all agree that when we look at the cross, when we see Christ crucified, we are reminded that we will never suffer as much as we deserve. Right. And that's always a sombering thought. Amen. Well, that's as good a closing thought as any. But before we do uh, run, I want to make one quick book recommendation. Um, and it happens to tie in with our weekly botched Audible uh, recommendation. Um, I'm actually going to read the thing so I get it right this time. So you can go to audibletrial.com slash brotherhood uh, and you can take part in a free trial of Audible. And with that free trial, you're going to get uh, a month free, uh, which comes with a free book. And you can actually get um, a book called The Death of Death uh, in the Death of Christ by John Owen. And this is kind of John Owen's uh, magisterial work on the atonement. So um, he's going to talk about uh, how the atonement functions. A lot of the stuff we've talked about, he's obviously going to go into more depth. But he actually un- unveils what's kind of colloquially called John Owen's trilemma. And what he does is he shows that if you affirm penal substitution, limited atonement is the only logical uh, result. So if you want to get rid of limited atonement, you're also going to have to get rid of penal substitution. Um, and it's, it's I mean, in my estimation, it's a pretty airtight argument. I know some people want to say that it's not, but I think that they're wrong. So you can check that out. Um, it's 16 hours and six minutes. Uh, I haven't listened to it, but um, I guarantee it'll be worth every minute. Of it. Um, Absolutely. Jesse, do you have any other recommendations this week? No, I, I would recommend the book that you already um, spoke about, like Why I'm Not Arminian. That's also yes. really good. 
Yeah. And, and it's compliment. I would say why I'm that uh, Calvinist is also really good. Again, I think part of what we want to accomplish here tonight and every time that we record is to bring people into thoughtful approach about their theology. And that also includes looking at different theological perspectives uh, in so much as if it only just serves to kind of strengthen your own, what you, what you already believe, then that's great. But we're, we're concerned about the courage and the conviction of conscience as it is informed and, and subjugated, it comes under the whole counsel of God. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that'll just about do it. Um, if you could do us a favor, go to iTunes, rate and review us, give us five stars. Uh, let us know what you think. That would be most appreciated. And um, just this week, take some time, get get to a quiet spot and think about the fact that if you are in Christ, that there is nothing that you could do or have to do or have to think in order to be saved, that Christ already did so everything that needs to be done on the cross. There's nothing left to do except to let the Holy Spirit appropriate that to you. Not not because that makes you saved, but because that helps you understand and experience your salvation. So good. Th- thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. See you next week. Oh, what if I-